And now it is time for We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning and welcome to We Are Just Christians. Thanks for the introduction, Ray. We appreciate it and we're glad that we can be with you this morning. A beautiful day and more beautiful because it is the Lord's Day. We pray that uh, you'll be benefited by listening to the show this morning as we talk about various spiritual subjects and we invite your participation in the show. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show, as you know if you've listened, but if not, if you're new, then it is a live call-in show. In just a moment, I'm going to give you the, the numbers and the way to get a hold of us here on the show. We have several ways you can reach us this morning, and we'd be glad to have you participate. This show is about all things spiritual. Sometimes we talk about uh, specific Bible topics and passages that people bring up or we want to talk about. Sometimes we, we talk about the current culture that we live in and as it relates to uh, Bible teaching because that's how we know how to live and we have to relate it to the world that we do live in. And we talk about, you know, things that are perhaps interesting or troubling to both Gary and I as we live our lives because it is a personal thing. That's how we live. That is according to the scriptures. So that's our presupposition. Because of many reasons, various reasons, we think good reasons, we can trust the scriptures to have the right information for us as to how to live in this world, teach us about God himself and what he expects of us. And we're going to search for the answers to the things that trouble us in the scriptures. So when you call in, to try to give you scriptures to look at to answer your question one way or the other if we possibly can and uh, sometimes they'll be very direct applications sometimes they'll be more indirect but we still are going to try to appeal to the scriptures if we don't know the answer we'll simply tell you that we don't really know the answer and try to figure it out for you so in any event that's the premise of the show my name is mike schmidt i'm the preacher and one of the elders for the church here in savona boulevard in Port St. Lucie, and Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing good this morning, Mike. Yeah, he's uh, he's uh, our partner on the show here, and we try to bring you this show each week for these purposes. So we invite your participation. Pretty much everything is on the table. We're going to give you the last word. We're not going to necessarily argue with you. We may disagree, but we're not going to you know try to win an argument by getting loud or shaming anybody or insulting anybody or baiting you for some answer. Uh, we're going to try to have a, a, a discussion about things, and if we differ, that's so that's okay, and if we don't, that's okay also. We'll give you the last word so you can uh, say what you want to say on the show. Well, um, we have a call on the phone. Are you there, Ken? Hello? Not hearing Ken. I'll have to try that again somehow here. Uh, we do appreciate, appreciate you calling in and do want to engage with you. So. I am not hearing Ken at all. Maybe um, you aren't either, are you, Gary? No, I'm not. Okay, so it's a technical problem. We'll get that straightened out. But in any event, if you'd like to call in, you can reach the show here in Port St. Lucie, uh, live from all over the world, I suppose, 772-340-1590. Almost did it. <laughs> yeah, I almost said the wrong one. 772-340-1590 is the number to reach us on the phone. That's how Ken got a hold of us. You can also text us. We'll give you the text numbers in just a moment. But Ken, are you there? Yes, Mike, I'm here. Oh, there you go. Okay, good. Thank God. All right. What's on your mind? Uh, uh, two, two scriptures. Exodus 1, 15 through 21. And Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Exodus 1:15. All right. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom one, the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you, he, she shall live. But the midwives fe feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? 
And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt with well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. And so Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born to you, you shall cast in the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So. I guess this is a Bible example, example, Kent, as you probably you may well know, a Bible because this may be where you're going with this. But this is a Bible example of the ancient practice of infant exposure. It was called it's called historically infant exposure, exposing. And, and it's pretty common in ancient cultures, really much pretty much up to the present time of exposing infants so that they die. You just take a child when it's born, put it out into the elements and let it die or just take it somewhere and put it in a trash heap or something. The Romans put them on the side on out in front of the houses and the doorsteps and they let them die. Today, we we deliver them uh, in an abortion setting. And if they're alive, we just put them in a metal, cold metal pan and let them die. That's what partial birth. That's sometimes the result of of late term abortions. You just have to let the baby die. And there's been some controversy over this. It, it, what are your thoughts on this passage, Ken? You brought it up. Uh, yeah, um, it, the two questions that come to mind here is uh, um, why didn't Pharaoh kill them himself? Well, the reason is it was illegal to kill a baby in Egypt. Hmm. It was illegal, so he couldn't do it himself, huh? Couldn't have his guards come in and kill these children. Right. And that's to force they, these, they, try to force they abandoned, these. They abandoned the children rather than outright kill them. Yeah, they didn't view it as killing if they just abandoned the child, let it die. Yeah, that was really it's kind of kind of like we are. It's funny how things change, but they don't change, isn't it? Yeah, uh, a lot of our population in the United States today thinks as long as we just let them lay in a pan and don't help them when they're born, that we're OK morally. Uh, or if we chop them up and we and have the woman expel them in chopped up pieces and we don't see it, that we didn't really do it. It's not really not really killing. But if we were to do something after they were born, that'd be a problem. It's funny how things don't change, isn't it? Yeah. And this is a lot of people's objection to late-term abortion, and should be, that it it amounts to infant exposure. The, the Romans were were known for this. Lots of other cultures. You can look it up. You can look it up on on the internet and just look up infant exposure, and you read a whole long series of articles, different things about ancient cultures and this practice. And then it, after Christianity came into play in in uh, especially in Europe, this practice was was outlawed and widely abandoned. But before Christianity, and isn't that interesting? Before Christianity, it was common. Then it became uh, very, very less common and illegal to not only to kill infants, but to expose them. And so we're moving back. Since we're moving away from Christianity, it's such a dastardly, evil, immoral religion. We're moving away from it. I'm being tongue-in-cheek here, that we're going back to practicing infant exposure i was thinking more like sarcasm but well yes it's okay yeah tongue-in-cheek sarcasm yes uh, that's that's what it is just so just so in case i've met plenty of people gary that when i say things like that they think i'm advocating it they don't have any kind of some people have no zero sense of humor or ability to get those kind of you know inflections or whatever and so they think that you're being serious, and unfortunately, it, it can bite you when you have a a little smart like sense of humor like I do. And I so I just want to make it clear I'm being sarcastic. Thanks, Gary. I don't mind the word sarcastic. But uh, now, now that I've gotten old, being sarcastic is just being called a curmudgeon, and it's not, it's a better word, curmudgeon. But my understanding is this was this kind of thing was mostly practiced with the females, not the males. Well, yeah. that would be that that's probably a good that's a good observation about this. Yes. But why didn't Pharaoh want the males to live? Because they could raise themselves up an army and resist right. him. 
he could always use the slaves as concubines and 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 use them as midwives or whatever he wanted to if they stayed alive. But um, there's a lot here culturally. What else you want to say about this, Ken? I was going to make a couple other points about it, but um, well, one of the things that's interesting is uh, this was directed specifically to the Hebrews. Uh, and uh, I mean, abortion today affects what 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 group of people most. So this form of genocide. Well, this was genocide. Yes. Form a, a, a minor, a beginning form of it. What do you mean? Who um, who does it affect? Who does abortion affect today? Uh, the poor, yes. black people. Right. It's really destructive in black communities. A black, and they're only 13% of the population. Yes, and about, what is it, 50% of the abortion are black babies? Yes. What's that? Yeah, something like that. And, and this is a, a disturbing thing, because the people that came up with the idea of eugenics, in our culture anyway, it's been around a long time, um, Sanger and others as began began Planned Parenthood uh, were doing so because it can control what they considered the undesirable elements of society, and they specifically mentioned the Negroes, as it were. And so it's always been been pointed. Most Planned Parenthood clinics are in black neighborhoods, and yet these and yet these white liberals think that they're doing some great thing by killing a lot of black babies. Now. And it goes, it goes to the population control, the myth of population control. And I'm um, going to get off the subject here, Ken and Gary. I, I saw an interview with Elon Musk. Maybe you've heard of Elon Musk. Yes. <laughs> Recently. Yes, I'm, not sure when the, I'm not sure when this interview was. It wasn't too long ago. And they asked him what the biggest problem in the world was. And he said, essentially, declining birth rates. Uh, he they, and the hosts are like shocked. I thought it was overpopulation. He says, no, no, no. He said that isn't the biggest problem facing mankind. It's large cultures like Japan and Europeans and in the, and the United States not having children to even replace themselves, and so negative birth rates have always been associated with civilizational collapse. And we're at the point with some of these large nations, like a few I just mentioned, and others, where we've backed ourselves into a corner we're not even replacing ourselves and very soon see it's people that bring we, we want society to advance progressives want society to advance but what is it that advances society is it this magic god quote-unquote science that advances us well science is nothing it, it doesn't exist unless we have people to understand and do the science to, to make make the science and so if we don't have enough people and a broad range of people to choose from, we're going to we're cutting out our geniuses and all kind of other things. We're wiping those people out by abortion and by not having children, just by not having children. That declining birth rates in Elon Musk's opinion is the biggest problem. We have plenty of space. We could put the entire population of the world and give them all plenty of land inside the state of Texas and have room left over. OK, so the space isn't the problem. It only seems like it when you're living in New York City. And no, since most no. of the liberals who control the world live in New York City and Washington, not they very, think the whole world's crowded up. You know? Right. Not very hospitable places, but that doesn't even mention Alaska and parts but, but, of Canada. But and, those places can be made livable. A lot and, of places were not livable 100 years ago that are perfectly livable now. And Russia has, you know, half not, of New York was on a swamp. Miles and miles of. Nothing right. That's so I'm saying. There's room. But anyway, uh, he was trying to control the population of the Hebrews. Well, my understanding is historically, even there were some writers in Romans in the Roman time that thought overpopulation was going to be a problem. I mean, it's, it's a matter of it's, it's a matter of perspective. If, if, you, if but it's crowded see, where you live. All right. I'll just tell you, you're right, Gary. And I'm going to go back to the one of the very first verses in the entire Bible. If you have a biblical worldview, what does God say to Adam? And repeats it more than once. Be fruitful, fruitful and multiply, multiply and fill the earth. Okay? So God's view of this world is we need plenty of people, lots of people. The more people, the better. 
the worldly view, this the 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 view of the opposite of God. The, I hate to call it satanic because you're going to think I'm talking about you know some kind of magical force here. But the the demonic view is we need fewer people. And the truth is, progressives hate people. I hate to be political, but progressives, every, every one of their policies, from food policies to every other policy, is against people, human beings. We want less of them, fewer of them. We want to restrict them. We don't like them. We want to kill them if we don't like them. So this is the culture of death. It's the opposite of the God culture, which is the culture of life and more life. So be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth. This is the now we don't always understand how this works, but it is the best thing that we have. Anyway, Ken, you wanted to go someplace else, I think, because you mentioned another passage, yeah, me, and I didn't get, get that. Okay. Uh, God bless the midwives for this, and that segues me into the next scripture of Matthew sixteen twenty four through twenty six. Okay. I wanted to, I, you, probably it's interesting you mentioned that because I've read this passage. I can't even tell you how many times I've read this passage. And this is really the first time I've noticed this morning that he s- promised the midwives that he would give them, provide households for them. I skipped right over that. I don't know what that means. He, he's going to give them a husband or some kind of a, a family. Uh, a family, going to give them midwives. Probably uh, I, I'm going to. I'm going to go on what I know a little bit about the culture, but I don't know that much about Egyptian culture per se. But midwives are typically, in many cultures, older women, often childless women who love children but haven't had any children. And they then get into the business of helping other women birth children or their, or their widows who had a family and children. And that's who become historically midwives, and it's what they do based basically for a living. But God said he would give households for them. Isn't that something? Um, made, a, made them a family, as it were. Now, what was the other passage that you mentioned? Matthew? 16. 16. I hate to admit this, but every uh, I had a lot of things go wrong this morning, but I went off without my ink pen. 16 what? 24. 24, okay, that's what I thought you said. So I didn't write your passages down when you called up. So Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For he who desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Is that, is that the verses you wanted read? Yeah. All right. What's your, what do you want to say about those in, in connection with Exodus 16? Uh, yeah, uh, talk about whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. I want to talk about that a bit. What do you think about that? That's uh, a very well. One you know, of the, the older I get, that the more profound that passage is to me. But go ahead, Gary. One of the things is what uh, the word there, life, is from the Greek "suke." That in both that soul. Okay. Yes, we get psychology yeah. from that, strangely enough, but is that psychology? So, so if you want a literal translation, but whoever loses his soul for my sake will find it. But the word soul, usually here in this place where it means life, is usually talking about the whole person. Yeah. It's not talking just about something that's inside you like your liver. It's talking about the whole person. Eight souls were saved through water, it says in Hebrews. It's, it's more like the Old Testament definition of soul, which is a living being. The, the, a living being, yes. So if you desire to save your life, that is, I think this fits the modern version, the individ, the radical individualistic version in Western culture now that my own opinions, my own life is the only thing worth protecting and doing, and I'm going to do what I want and follow my dreams, no matter what it does to anybody else around me. Follow your heart. Follow my heart. This is this this radical individualism 
is the person who is saving his life. He's going to do with his body, his spirit, his life, whatever he wants and refuses to give over to anybody else, any part of that life. Frank Sinatra, I did it in my life. I did it in my there, there is a real crisis among young people. A few of us old people might be aware of it. Is that is a lot of them are are looking to be married. They look they're looking for someone, a mate. And you can find lots of evidence of this in some of the chat rooms, and you can find it on YouTube and interviews and stuff. That they can't find anyone to marry them. And they're all searching as to why this is, to find the right person. And what it boils down to, Gary, when you when you break it, what I've seen, is that especially, and this is especially true of women for some reason, but they, what they want is they want someone to support them while they do what they want. That's what they think a husband is for, for example. Someone who will financially and emotionally support me while I do what I want. Or they can't bring... They've had lots of partners, men and women, over their 20s and 30s, but they've never married any of them for an length of time, if at all, because marriage is too hard because of their radical individualism. They want to save their life. Let me tell you something. If you want to have a successful, good marriage, you can't go into it trying to save your life in the way Jesus is using this word here. Right. And, because and, your life is going to be lost in that marriage. That's the whole point of the marriage, to well, lose your life. There's there's not any concept of marriage is partially the view of serving the other. Basically, the husband right. is going to serve the wife. And he's and losing his life when he does that. And he loses his life because he doesn't get to do what he wants to do. He does it for the benefit of right, the other. Right. And the wife is going to be the same way in many ways, just a different set of circumstances. Now, I'll go back. Now, then you go on take that analogy a little further. You think I'm just talking about husbands and wives, but what is it to be a Christian? It's to be married to Jesus Christ, Christ, which means that both of us are going to lose our life. Jesus lost his life to save ours. Both And, and not, not just the physical life on the cross. He lost the life he had with God before the world began to save us. Permanently altered and does not get to do what he wants to do or what he would have otherwise done. And so this is the whole thing. This is why not everybody who talks about Christianity can be a Christian. Jesus says, if you will not do this in other paths, if you will not take up your cross and follow me, he says, you cannot be my disciple. I have to look that one up, but it's, it's the same quote. It's in another gospel, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. You cannot be my disciple. And so this is the... Um, that, that, now then, then, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll actually find it. But here's the thing: what what you what the ra- radical individualist never sees is that in losing his life in the right way, for the sake of Christ and doing God's will, and and serving others, you actually gain a life that you could never have before—a better life. You actually you actually fulfill the purpose for which you were actually made. Your the purpose for which you were made is not to be America's greatest greatest talent or singer or actor or whatever it may be. That's not, or the best Instagram model, that's not the purpose for which you were created. You were created to, to serve others and glorify God in that. And so when you do lose your life, you actually gain the life that you think you have lost. Yeah, This is the secret of Christianity that's not well understood. Well, the secret of marriage is in 1 Corinthians 7. And I want to read this because this is important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If couples practice this, the divorce rate would, would decline to some minuscule point, I am convinced. Okay, I, but right. we, goes, don't, it, we don't it, practice it, that. It creates a cycle then. Right. We don't practice that. And I have some thoughts after we get through with this about you're talking about population and overpopulation and well, climate, uh, the, and climate the, control. And, 
Okay, we'll come back but, to that. Remind but, me. But the same thing is true. I mean, it's there's a principle there about serving and examples to do things. We have a parallel passage to the verse that Ken mentioned here in Matthew 16 and Luke 14. What I was trying to think of, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. Not, not even will not be, but this says cannot be. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he tells a parable about counting the cost of this. Yeah. So Christianity is not just for everybody. And people, go, oh, people, these church growth experts are all worried about the fact that people are rejecting Christianity at times when we can't get people, droves of people in there. And they do everything they can to get droves of people to, to come to church. Jesus says there's just the point is that not everybody is interested in this. We just happen to live in a time when when many more people are not interested than there have been in the past. And that's the way it is right now, because you have the reason that they're not interested is not because Christians aren't nice or because Christians are this or that or because we take a wrong position on whatever it is. It's because they cannot give up their life to become a Christian. They will not do it. And therefore, they cannot be my disciple. So now. A um, couple things. First of all, let's get Ken's comment on some of this, and then Gary will go back to yours. Okay. And we have another phone call, so we got to okay. wind this up. What, Ken, uh, do you want to say anything about that, or do you, you want to link these two passages for us in your mind? Yeah, uh, let me let me put a one. Let me uh, uh, connect this with the uh, uh, midwives. Yeah. Uh, they uh, put their lines on the life, their life on the line with Pharaoh by disobeying Pharaoh. And because of that, they got blessed and got life. Um, now, A civil disobedience, huh? One of your favorite verses. A verse in Revelation about uh, who's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Oh, yeah. Li- all liars and. Yeah, what's, the, what's the first thing on the list? No, I can't think of it, Ken. Coward. It's it's a very ca- ca- cowards. That's right. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cowards. I don't know why I couldn't so think. Of it. Is, you can't be a Christian and be afraid of government or anything. Right. Right. Yeah. It, you have to be willing. And, and the idea that that you can take Romans 13 and make it. Uh, so that you can never disobey anything the government says is simply a misunderstanding of that passage. Because we have many cases in the Bible where his faithful people disobeyed civil rulers. The point is, under Christ, the government is under under Christ also, and they have an obligation to obey him. And so that's the first thing you got to remember about that. They have an obligation to obey also, and they'll be judged when they don't obey. That's talking about a willful rebellion against them, not about resisting what is evil. And so, yes, they, these cowards, cowards will um, have their place. We, all right, a uh, real brief comment, then Gary wants to, we've got to move on here. But people are concerned about, oh, is God judging our country and stuff? And I try to make the point, I'm not making it very clearly, I guess. God's judgments don't come in a flash of lightning from heaven. They're coming we're being judged now to be judged to, for things to be divided. We're being discerned and divided by God now. And I will tell you that when when the devil pushes as far as he has into our culture, the way he has, trying to force Christians to do wicked things, trying to force the whole population to do wicked things, and smiling all the time you're doing it, like our government has been doing, we they're either going to receive pushback from the people of the United States or they're not. Okay, and and we can push back in a lot of ways. We have a chance on Tuesday, for example, to push the, back on the American way to push back in our own way, a peaceful way to push back. And I will tell you that I think unless there is a massive kind of pushback, things are going to get much worse, and they may get much worse anyway. But God will then judge us, has will have judged us because we refuse to push back and say enough is enough. Let's go the other way. And stop some of this madness of turning our children into into transsexuals and homosexuals, whatever. We got to stop some of this madness. 
and and uh, in my opinion. So we have a chance to push back. And if there's no pushback, then God God finds out what he needs to know. He will see what he needs to know, and then he will play his next card, as it were. Since a texture mentioned, if you get married, you have no more poker night, no more fishing, John said. I'm not sure that's true, but I guess uh, he got, God will then do – he's involved in history too. We're involved. He's involved. We, re- we act. He responds. He responds. We act back and forth, and you see this interplay, and God is judging us the whole time we're doing these things as to whether he can bless or curse. Had these Hebrew midwives given in to Pharaoh – and pleaded that, that they were powerless in the face of the most powerful man on earth at that time. God could not have blessed them with a household, but they did resist him, and he blessed them. That's, I think that's the point you're making, isn't it, Ken, now that I see the whole thing? All right, well, I appreciate okay. Ken's gone, uh, and I appreciate his call very much. Uh, real quick, before we go to Jerry, you wanted to say something Well, about I was going to talk about uh, God in in Genesis chapter 1, both in verse 22 and verse 28, he says it twice within a few verses. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters, talking about creatures. And then he tells man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he's talking about all of these things that he's created, including man. And he says it again after the flood. And he says it again after the flood. But one of the more important things he says after the flood, Mike, I think bears on how we should worry so much about climate change. In Genesis 8, 21 and 22, it says, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy everything as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. These so, things are not going not going to go away. These things they may are not all, gonna, the altar is not going to go away. Right. So that's my that's just my comment. Right. And, and the other thing we're talking about freedom in this country. Uh, there's a there's a YouTuber out there, and he's uh, titled for his YouTube was the Four Boxes Diner. I've never seen that one. You never seen that one? Do you know what the Four Boxes are? No, I don't. I couldn't figure out why you, why why would you have a Four Boxes Diner. Well, there are four boxes of freedom that are recorded in some of the basically founding fathers' writings. The soapbox, which you can speak, that's free speech. The uh, jury box, which holds the jurors who decide on our, okay. Uh, Basically, then there is uh, the cartridge box, okay, which basically we have the freedom to bear arms. And uh, now I have a certain, certain the ballot box. The ballot box. So those are the four boxes. I think Frederick Douglass mentioned this in one of yeah, his yes, speeches. Yes, this is where it comes from. It's the four boxes of freedom. Yeah. And uh, we need to remember that because we're really facing critical things concerning those things. Exactly. Today. Exactly. Well, all right, uh, Jerry, are you there? Uh, thank you, Mike. Good morning, Gary. Uh, very interesting show. Uh, my question uh, is about the concept of the Trinity. Uh, I know you, you touch her, her forehead, then the middle of your chest, and then each shoulder. Uh, well, my question, would it be easier for a, a layman to understand the concept of the Trinity if you were to consider the, the tenses of a word? Uh, in other words, when... Uh, a Christian does that, uh, and they genuflect, they go down to one knee, uh, are, are they saying amen when they, when they genuflect? They go down to one knee. Uh, but uh, I was just wondering, uh, the, the, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, uh, could that be easier to understand if they were to understand the tenses of a word? Uh, and it's, uh, it's always had me baffled, and uh, I just wondered about the part where they genuflect. When they genuflect, are they saying amen that they believe in the Trinity, that that all, all three are on one entity? Uh, and it's always had me confused all my life, and, and I'd like to listen off air, Mike, if that's okay. Okay, I, I think I understand your question, yeah, Jerry. I'll, I'll do the best I can with this. Trinity, 
you will touch her, her forehead, then the middle of your chest, and then each shoulder. And uh, I'm just wondering uh, uh, how it would be easier for a layman to understand that concept of that that that's all included in one person, or, or the, the concept of the queen. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, it's, it's always had me baffled. But I wonder one day, if you can request a part of it, one a question, uh, genuflex goes down to one knee. Uh, are they saying amen? In other words, they do believe uh, in the quinity. The, the and I'd like to listen to Ron Fowl, Mike. Okay. You all okay? That's fine, Jerry. I appreciate your call. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Um, uh, my, my problem in answering the question is that, and I imagine it's Gary's problem, is we don't have a a lot of experience with genuflecting. Well, one of the first things I would not, have to say is those practices are sim- simply not in Scripture. Okay. Yes, it, it is. The, uh, those practices are not there. Now, are there questions about the nature of God? And we see three things described. We see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost described in Scripture. They they take part in things. But much beyond that, it's really hard to say from Scripture just exactly how that's right. How, how could a layman understand it better? Oh, I have some other ways I think you could understand it better than, than genuflecting. Now, from what I understand, the idea of genuflecting, most people think it's uh, making a – when you do, do the thing on the forehead – the chest, the each shoulder, you're really making the form of the cross. Yeah, that's what that, you're, you're not that's making what, the form of the Trinity per se. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the real definite, if you look up genuflect, which I did just to see if there was something I'm missing, the it's an intransitive verb. It means to bend the knee or touch one knee to the floor, as in worship, or ground as in worship. Uh, I did not realize that. I have to say, Jerry, I didn't realize that genuflecting involved touching your knee to the floor. I thought it was just making that sign of the cross. And the only thing that I've seen is, know that. is in the movies, and I don't know who the movies are so, right. Yes. When they do that, they generally are in a church or near something and turn to the front where you see the image of Christ. And then they make a, then they, and that sometimes they will kind of curtsy right. or a, a, a small bow. And I didn't know that right. that was part of it. So I learned something today. But I, I don't, we don't practice genuflecting. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that we don't practice it. We certainly don't bind it on anybody that you have to genuflect and make the sign of the cross. There's nothing in the Bible about making the sign of the cross with your hands on your forehead or chest as if that means anything. If it means something to you, that's so your own personal conscience. Okay. I, Gary and I could certainly never teach that that's something you ought to be doing. Every day. Per se, uh, especially to receive forgiveness or that your prayers aren't answered or anything like that. Now, the only thing I can remember, Mike, is I think we will all do that when we meet the Lord at judgment. Well, every knee will bow. Every knee will okay. bow. Now, if that's what genuflecting is, yes, every knee mm-hmm. will bow. When, in Philippians 2, when we meet the Lord Jesus, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, uh, that's why I call him. Every, the, everybody's going to do it. That's once. why I call him the former atheist Carl Sagan, Sagan. Uh, partly. But anyway, not not the he's not a, and the former atheist, you know, Christopher Hitchens or whatever. But um, since they died, I don't think they're atheists anymore. In, in any event, the other question is probably a, a critical one too, and that's the question: the Christian. Uh, let me see if I can talk this out here. The question of the Trinity, or as it's often called, the Trinity. Well, per- I, I knew one preacher that wouldn't even use the word I, Trinity. I don't use that word. I was going to say, I, I, I know what people are talking about, and I, I'm not trying to be uh, make things more difficult. I don't use the word Trinity as such because it's not in the Bible. And number two, most of the definitions I see about the Trinity are uh, not very good ones. Now, when I say it's not in the Bible, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. It, it has a concept, as Gary just mentioned, of the of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Spirit. It doesn't say three persons in one Godhead. It doesn't say that either. It doesn't say it doesn't say three persons. It may allude to that in First John of three in one. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and he does everything by the Spirit, he says, and he's going to send his Spirit and all these things. So we see their innate connection of, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I believe that all three are divine. All three are in some sense independent, but all three are intricately connected in a way that they cannot be 
completely separated. And all three have the status of deity. They all have the status of deity. So those are the things Gary and I both believe that that means we we probably would be considered by most religious uh, 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 what do you call them? Religious historians or whatever, anthropologists, we would be considered uh, Trinitarians because of that, because we're not like Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, others who believe there is only one and the other two, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, are not really gods. We're certainly not Jewish in the way, since we don't believe that Jesus is God at all, the Holy Spirit. Well, I, so, I have used the, this term, for lack of better, the triune nature of God. Yes, God is triune. Uh, yes, and so that, but that is that's correct. I think there's triune is a combination. I forget what they call these words now, where you put two words together. Three and, unity. Yes, oh, tri three, and then unity, unity is one. So three and one, triune might be a better word. But all, all that being said, since Gary and I do believe that there are three: Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who all are deity, and yet all show separation in some degree in the Bible. The problem that I would warn people about who are listening, the common man is all who's listening, is not to go too far since the Bible presents it as somewhat of a paradox in that it does not explain in detail the the nature of this three in one. We go too far in making God just one and exclude the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father as such. The other way we go too far is to separate them all out so that they all are completely separated, because they're not. Jesus keeps saying, I and the Father are one, okay? And we need to understand what that means. Uh, does that mean one in purpose? Yes, but it means, I think, more than that. Well, he talks about coming to them again and being a comfort to them, and then he refers to the Spirit that he's going to send almost in the same passage. So it's hard to really separate. Now, you can... You can almost separate activities, okay? You can separate the head, you can separate the sun, and then you can separate the activities of the Holy Spirit to some degree, but you can't do it in right. every case. Now, now uh, I've talked about this here at the church several times, and I, uh, I don't know if Gary agrees with me or not about it. He, pro- he probably doesn't. No, no one no one agrees to anyone else about the Trinity. <laughs> I found well, no one 100% agrees about anybody else about it. All, all, all I'm sure of is we do not understand it completely. It is a paradox, and that's the first thing I want to emphasize to people. Whatever, whatever illustration that I give you or that you accept, of, and Jerry's interested in illustration about uh, the Trinity here. I'm not, I'm not sure how I get the Trinity out of the four things that you make from the genuflecting, but... That seems to be the cross more than that's anything. the cross. But uh, the idea is, I think you do say Father, Son, Holy Spirit when you do yeah. that. I think so. Th- there is a connection, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not informed about that. That's not, that's not where I would take you if I was going to teach you about religion. But I will say this: once you understand that it is a paradox, and not to press the paradox too far, there have been many illustrations given down through time as to how you have three in one. And, and so you come up with these, these three persons in one. I, I think that's inadequate. Some people use things like an egg, a, a yolk, a white, and a shell. Of course, the egg has many more parts, and those three are very distinct from each other, even though they make one object. You can have lots of other illustrations people have given for the Trinity. In my own opinion, and I've said this on the radio before, the best way that I can understand it, the best way I think you could understand it, is to note that you, as a human being, Made in God's image, interestingly enough, and I think importantly, you're made in God's image. You are three in one. First Thessalonians 5, Thessalonians 5.23 talks about our whole body, spirit, and, and uh, soul. soul. There's the life principle, there is the body, and there is the spirit of man. And All three. And you can't separate them easily. He even talks in Hebrews 12, 4.12 about the fact that it's a, it, it, without the word, you can't even separate soul and spirit, and I don't know that you can adequately anyway. You were just talking about this, Gary. So yeah, it's very difficult to separate them. Well, and all I'm going to say about that is, yes, as far as we can go with that, that's probably a good analogy, but we still don't understand all the relationship we, we between body, soul, and spirit. And, and, I am, and that's the point I'm making. It is a paradox. We can only go so far. But here's the point I would make. First of all, I am one. I, I am one, okay? And yet I am three. 
Now, here's the problem. When I go ripping those three things apart to look at them separately, I got nothing but destruction for man. If I rip my soul away from my body, my spirit away from my body, I'm dead. You know, you can't do this very well. We're all one. And yet sometimes, Gary, in the course of a person's life or experience, you will be able to discern the body. It'll be more important, more direct, more direct to you in your apprehension than at other times. If I'm talking to someone on the telephone, their body is present, but not really to me. It's not apprehendable because I'm talking on the telephone, unless I consider the fact that they're making sound waves with their voice. But I'm really what, I, what you're really getting on a telephone is the spirit of the person. Now, if I look at them on FaceTime, I can see a picture. I can see an image of them that still isn't quite as direct as them being in person. And if I go to the funeral home and look at the same person in the casket, when the soul and the spirit are both gone, I see one part of them, a body, but not the other parts. So at different times in our existence, different parts of our being come into play. I can have a, I can have a conversation with my daughter, for example, and we can commune as two spirits. I can hug her with my body, or I can, at some point, realize she's about to be hit by a car and shove her out of the way. Now, my conscious mind and my spirit are not so much in action at the moment that I save her from the car. It's my body that's doing the work, you see, most importantly. And so we have this now. I'm going to try to wrap this up. I know I'm expounding too much here, but God in the Old Testament appears as a appears as a mind, as the directing force. He lays out that he has a plan to save man and through 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 one that's coming and so forth. And in and that mind, as it were, of God then brings about the action. The action occurs beginning in Matthew one with the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, is in this way, God's body, per se, a body thou hast prepared me. And Jesus comes and lives as a man. He does mighty works all throughout the Gospels. We hear about Jesus doing these things, doing mighty works. And his act, the action of his body ends up saving man. It ends up bringing about the, the climax of this so this plan that God, the mind of God had to save man. And then the Holy Spirit, beginning in Acts chapter 2, most profoundly, begins to share this news through the preaching of the gospel and the inspiration of the Jesus and the apostles to spread this word throughout the whole world that would lead about to the salvation of men. So here you have body, soul, and spirit in a modified metaphorical form, the three parts of God acting as one. And you see that God acts this way. Now, if I start trying to separate the Father and the Son, I'm going to run into problems. When I try to start trying to completely separate the Son and the Spirit, I run into problems. problems. That's, and so you have to acknowledge that you can't go, you can only go so far with any understanding or analogy like this. It's helpful. I see that much more clearly since the Bible says we're made in God's image than I do about an egg or whatever other illustrations people use, which are merely physical illustrations. And so this is something that has helped me, and I hope that that, that might – I think it helps uh, – you know, it would help other common people because they can see this. The, the problem we run into is we as as body, soul, and spirit can't tear ourselves apart and act in – as far as our corporal look at this world can't act at different places in different ways at the same time. And God can't. Yes. He can do all these things at once in a much better way, but, but we are still made in his icon or his image. image. We, we are a limited version of God. God. And since God is three in one and we are three in one, I see the parallel. So in any event, I know that's not a very popular view. And if you take it too far, you, you go into what is called modalism. The modalists, if you go back in religious history, they taught that God existed in these three forms temporarily in one form or another. They didn't really believe in the three in one in a certain way. So I, I understand there's an error called modalism. And if you press this too far, yeah, that's where you go. Or you can go back and say that you can go and you can be like the uh, oneness Pentecostals and everything is Jesus. 
and you have God standing on the earth in the water of the Jordan River, casting his voice in the heavens and saying, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased, but Jesus is everything, you know. How does God from the heavens, how does God speak from the heavens when Jesus is in the river being baptized? Yes. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Obviously there's a separation, but there's still one. But Jesus says, Jesus again says in John, the father is greater than I am. He as said, far as authority, as far as authority, Jesus was subservient to the will of the Father, yes. and so you have this element of submission. And so there are times in my see, and here's what he tells about Christians: Who is to be in control? Who is to be in control of me as human being? My mind, that would be the parallel of the Father in my little analogy, is in control. It controls my body, but without my body, my mind can't do anything that needs to be done. My spirit makes me alive, and it talks and communicates what's going on. And so if I just have my mind, you'd just be a vegetable laying somewhere on a bed. There's people like this. Their mind is working, but their mouth and their body are not working, and they're a shell of themselves, we call it. And we say they're not really there. We wonder, are they really there when we only see them laying there? Their mind. So you, it, we need all three to work together together. And yet at some time in history and in our own lives, we see one aspect of this greater than the other. And that's the way the world works. Now, Ken texted back in. He said, when I was a boy, I built model cars, and they had three-in-one kits. I remember this because I used to love model cars. Stock, custom, and racing in one car, but you you could build it three ways, one of three ways. Um, so I'm not sure. That, Ken, I have to tell you, your analogy isn't as good as mine. But, but, uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, I, I, you can you can build the car the way it needs to be built, depending on what you want for it to be. And so, when the time was ne- right, God God sent His Son when the time was right, in the fullness of time. Galatians four says, and so that's that's how He built that model car. And then His Son went back to heaven, and now we're in charge of building. On that basis, so don't don't be carried away by any one aspect of God. There is only one God. He is just like we're, there's only one you and one me as human being, but they have different aspects to them, and we see them differently, and we ought to honor all of them. We don't worship three God. That's the trouble I have with saying there's three persons in one. I begin to feel like a a pagan, a polytheist. Who worships three gods? And you know that's what the that's the objection that now there's all kind of Muslims, Gary. But a sincere, devout Muslim, not one who is just out to destroy Western civilization or kill people, of which there's a few of those. But <laughs> the kind of Muslims I knew before the 1990s, you know, um, they think that Christians are essentially polytheists, that we believe in more than one God. Because of the way we separate God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now, the truth is, well, I, they, can, I can understand why they would say that if they only understood what oftentimes like Catholics present about God or other people present about God. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. And I do believe Jesus is God. But but they, they are viewing it as this great separation that's made. They view it as three gods. You start talking about three persons. You're talking about three gods. It seems to me. Now, that's my opinion, and you may disagree with that. Well, basically, I think they don't recognize Jesus as being deity, though Jesus claimed that. In who in doesn't the, recognize it? The Muslim. Oh no, I'm not. I'm saying they say we say that. Okay. They say we say that. That's why. That's why Gary. They don't recognize Jesus as deity, because they say the Old Testament is very clear. God is one. There is one God. His name is Allah to them, but there is one God. So you can't have Jesus as a God because you've already got a God, Allah, and you can't have Jesus as a God. And you certainly can't have the Holy Spirit as a God. Even though Jesus claimed that. Well, that's right, but they say he was an imposter. You certainly can't have the Holy Spirit as a God. Now, there are plenty of Christians who believe that Jesus and and the Father are God, but not the Holy Spirit. Okay, I've met those people in life. I just think that each of those is a result of not letting the analogies or the, the spe- scripture speak for itself and try and trying to force our limited understanding on some of these things. Yes, 
the, the Trinity is a complex doctrine. It's a paradox. And you can probably a- ask more questions than you can answer. Humans can always ask more questions than they can answer. It's our nature. That's because we're like God in that aspect. And God is under no obligation to answer all of our questions, okay, just because we ask them. Uh, I'm not sure we could comprehend some of this. But I think you're much better off going with the analogy of a person because most of us live as a person. We live as a person. We exist as a person. And we can see these subtle differences, and yet we don't understand them. We say, well, he just wasn't himself today. What do you mean he wasn't himself today? He's the same self he's always been. Well, no, he wasn't himself today. What do we mean by We mean something by that, and we're, we're right about saying that. What we mean is we saw something in his behavior or language, which would be the Holy Spirit, or his body or his language or his own uh, uh, mind that's not normal. And so we we say he's not there. Even the Bible says when he, he the prodigal son, Gary, he came to himself. Well, where was he? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? We use this language because it reflects the experience that we have. Even the Bible uses this language that there is more than one piece of us, as it were, that works together. And it's not easily separated. But sometimes you can see that it gets a little bit separated. My, my mother-in-law my mother-in-law died of Alzheimer's dementia after many years. It was a terrible experience. I've talked about it before on the radio here to watch this beautiful woman suffer the way she did and die. But there was a good many years there, and it's, we could see it beginning, where we lost Eleanor. I mean, she just slowly disappeared. She did things that Eleanor never would do, and she acted in ways that she never had acted before, Mostly, she just disappeared into her own mind, and we saw just a shell laying there in the bed. I believe from what the Bible says that she was still there, trapped in a body that wasn't functioning. One part of her, one part of her triune nature, her own triune nature, was defective, that one part being the body, body. the brain. The mind was still there, but the brain was defective. It inhibited any kind of speech or communication which would be her spirit, from showing out to anybody else or being able to be known. In fact, God about, says about himself that no man can know this, what's, what's in his mind unless he tells him what's in his mind. So God has to speak for all I can know what he said, what he is. And so we have to be able to speak for people to know or act in some way to know. And so we slowly saw her disappear from our view, except her body, which even altered significantly. But I believe she was still there until she took her last breath. The Bible says, as long as the spirit's there, the body's alive. And so I reverse that, and I say, when the body's alive, the spirit is there. And on December 31st, uh, one year, she passed away. And so, therefore, her body went to the grave. We buried her in Jensen Beach. The, the body's in the grave. The spirit's with God who gave it. There's a separation that took place. Not supposed to. And what does God call that? Death. It's not supposed to be like that. The separation isn't supposed to happen. Well, you say the spirit, but then again, when we look at the definitions, soul seems to be more related well, to the life. Form. They're often used interchangeably. And they're often, they're used, often used, used exactly because life and spirit are together. They're built in together. And so, well, can a spirit be alive without the soul? So, well, well, they're the same thing. I don't think yeah. a body can be alive without without the spirit. I know James says that the body can't be alive without the spirit. So we got about a minute of talking, about a minute for the two minutes before the show's up, Gary. Uh, you want to add any thoughts? This we're going to appreciate the we've gotten far well, afield. And I knew we get the Trinity. Well, yeah, we're just we going back to one one the relationship between body, soul, and spirit, particularly between soul and spirit, is a difficult one that's not I don't think fully given to us at this point in time. That revelation is just not there yet. Right. So anyway, I just want to think people should. Uh, be careful about which direction they go when they get talking about a trinity, not to push but, analogies too far because you'll be off in dangerous right. ground. It's it's hard it's hard for man to recognize that God does not answer some questions for us. No. He, he you you want to ask them, but he's going to say that's going to come later. Now the interesting thing I didn't even get to, and we got about a minute left, so we'll we'll uh, get to this. The the is the fact that he says in the end that the son will take his position in subservience to the father, 1 Corinthians 15, yeah. about verse 40. All right, well, our time is gone this morning. 
we really appreciate you listening to the show. Well, he learned obedience in Philippians. He learned, yes, he learned obedience, and he then he becomes he lets the Father be all in all. It says. So uh, we appreciate you listening, and we'd like to point you to our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Take a look there, and you'll find lots of different Bible resources, including recordings of this show under the radio show at the bottom of the page, and also the sermons. We also like to invite you to come and be with us tonight, uh, today at, at 10, 11, and then 7.30 on Wednesday nights, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you until next week. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie on WPSL Port St. Lucie.